Welcome to Seeking Christ in the Scriptures. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to go deeper in the Scriptures, but just isn't sure how to go about it. We're here to help you think, live, and love biblically, while never losing sight of the real purpose of Scripture, which is to show us the glories of Jesus Christ. And I'm your host, Matthew Tilly. You're listening to Episode 3 of the podcast. Welcome. Last weekend was one of those weekends really for the highlight reel, if there ever was one. Some of you might know this and some of you know the details behind all of it, but uh, my family and I have been going through a bit of a difficult time, uh, really since I resigned uh, from the being the pastor of McConnell Road Baptist Church all the way back in November. And I have a friend, uh, Pastor John White, uh, who's been a real encouragement through to me through all this. Um, I don't even know if he really fully realizes how much of an encouragement, how much of a help he's been to me, but I do know that it's something for which I will be forever grateful for, for his help. And as a side note, as I'm thinking about this, it makes me very, very aware of just how easy it is for you to get to that place where you just feel isolated, you feel alone, you feel like you're carrying your burdens by yourself. Uh, particularly in the ministry and the Christian life in any level. But God has been so good to, to, to me and allowing me when I needed it most to have some good godly friends to be able to come alongside of me to help pick me up, lift me up, and help me out in some pretty amazing ways. But anyway, back to my story. Uh, pastor White, um, is, he's the pastor of, of Freedom Baptist Church in Rural Hall, North Carolina. And as some of the conversations we've had over the last few months, he invited me to come and preach at the church that he pastors. Now, for some of you, that may not mean a whole lot. Um, in fact, I've preached at quite a few different churches. So, you know, the fact that I got to preach at another church is great. Love the fact that I get to preach. I've got a place that I'm going to get to preach coming up soon. I'll tell you about in the uh, in the coming weeks. But um, so I'm, I'm always happy to be able to preach. But the, this you have to understand there's something special about this church. Uh, this is the place where me and Vanessa, my wife, uh, were married. This is the place where my older children really grew up uh, for the biggest part of their younger lives. This is where I believe I tremendously grew in my walk with the Lord. It's the place where I was called to preach, where I ultimately surrendered to preach. This is the place, this church was the church that ordained me into the gospel ministry. They sent me out under their uh, authority, um, and, and I... I, I I hold that in high regard. It's where my father-in-law, a man that I admire greatly, was a pastor for about three decades. So to say this is this church has a dear spot in my heart, it's a little bit of an understatement, to be honest with you. Um, and preaching there specifically was a huge deal to me. So huge, and it's a little embarrassing to admit to, but I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you that uh, I had actually prayed for some time, off and on, about God giving me a chance to one day stand in this pulpit. So that prayer has been answered. I was able to stand there and preach, and uh, it was just that on its own was amazing. But what I wasn't quite expecting was just exactly how encouraging the people were to me and my family. I certainly want to be as much of a blessing as I can be anywhere I go. Um, and of course, the jury's out on how successful I'll be on that. But but this weekend, I preached what the Lord had for me to preach. I believe that with all my heart. And I walked away with the joy of knowing I worshiped the Lord with the people of God. And I was able to fellowship with some wonderful folks. And I walked away with really 
the, the stuff that is referenced in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, that provoking one another to love and good works, uh, the idea of not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together because we need one another. And he says you need that even more as the day, that final day, that day of Christ's return comes. The, the point being that the church, I mean, I had a great time this past weekend, but it really reminds me that church in general should not be seen as a drudgery or a duty as much as it's seen as a joy and an encouragement. And that's actually the point of church. You do know you're not getting any brownie points in heaven because you show up. Nobody's putting a gold star on your chart in heaven. Uh, yeah, there's a, there is a responsibility. You need to go there. But, but honestly, you ought to be getting something out of the experience. Some of you might say, uh, well, that preacher just isn't doing it for me. But, but I kind of like what the old theologian from a couple centuries back, centuries back, a, a man named B.B. Warfield said, he says, if there's no fire in the pulpit, it falls to you to kindle it in the pews. No man can fail to meet with God in the sanctuary if he takes God there with him. And I want to just tell you, we, we God was in the sanctuary with us this weekend. And I am better as a result of that because he was there. And that's always going to be the case. When, when the Lord meets with you, it changes you. And I want to encourage you right now. I know this is a pretty a tough time with, with COVID really kind of spiking all over. We're in North Carolina here. And that's, you know, it's kind of a, a, it's a, it's a, on the rise right now. And all these shutdowns and quarantines and the worries some have. And, and you know, I'm definitely going to be one that says, be wise. You know, y'all can turn me off if this offends you. I'm sorry, but, you know, I'm going to wear a mask. Just I'm going to do my best to social distance. I'm going to do those things. This is what I'm doing all week when I get gas and I get groceries and things like that. Uh, but 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 here's the, the point I want you to see is that these these are dark times for everybody. And they're going to be even darker without God's people encouraging us and without God, without you being an encouragement to God's people. So my encouragement to you is make a point to get involved in your local church, stay involved. It's not gonna be as easy as it might've been a few, you know, a year or two ago. Um, it's not gonna be that easy. It's gonna be tough. It's gonna take some commitment. It's gonna, you're gonna have to be creative about it, but you need the church and it needs you. I'm living proof of that. In our Bible study, we're in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. Now, Samuel, if you haven't done it yet, I want to encourage you to take a minute and just read the passage. This is 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, we'll pick up where we left off last week in verse 11 is where we'll pick up. And we'll go all the way to verse 36. I'm not going to read all that out loud. I'm going to assume that if, if you're interested in this study, you'll either follow along as I'm talking or you'll have read it in advance. But um, I do think it's very important for you to understand. This is looking at the scripture, trying to understand what it tells us. And as I've said from the beginning of this podcast, one of the goals that I have in talking to you is to help you to see the bigger picture. Uh, the bigger picture of scripture, yes, but the bigger picture of a chapter, of a section of a book, of a particular book, and then you fit all that together in this big picture of all the scriptures. And I'm not, I'm not hiding, I'm not ashamed from the, of the fact that I, I'm assuming that the answer all ratchets up to being Jesus, Jesus being the big picture of scripture. And that's based on what he said to the Pharisees in John chapter five and verse 39, when he said that they, the scriptures testify of me. 
But what exactly, because we can say, yeah, it's about Jesus, but what exactly is the passage telling us about Jesus? What, what is it about him? What does 1 Samuel, what does this chapter show us about our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I think it's helpful to remember all the way back to chapter one. If you didn't listen to the last episode, episode two, you might want to go do that, but, but I'll just summarize it here very briefly for you that in chapter one, you've got this woman, her name is Hannah, and she is missing something in her life. It's really been taken from her because of sin that's rampant in her family and in her nation. But as a result of this, she doesn't have this thing that's very important. It's a son. She doesn't have that. And as a result of not having that son, she's unfulfilled. She's even oppressed within her own family. And what she shows us is the personal and the family impact of a world that operates us doing what is right in its own eyes. That's the very last verse of Judges, also a theme that's repeated out throughout the book of Judges. But just as we go into 1 Samuel, we're reminded that everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And because of that, you have this personal impact of sin, individual impact. People are hurting. People are devastated because of the sin. And that's what you see in verse uh, chapter 1. But the answer to that impact Again in chapter 1, and then of course Hannah's response in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, is the fact that God's upending hand, his mighty hand, his exalting hand, comes in and he addresses this. In fact, we see that he is actually the kind of God. Yahweh is the kind of deity that works on behalf of the oppressed, works on behalf of the weak, so that he can upend those situations and make, the, make things that were wrong, he can make them right. So now as we go into chapter two, the scope of the story sort of is zooming out just a little bit. No longer do you have just one particular family in view. In fact, you're transitioning from Hannah and Elkanah and that family to where they have dropped off their son, uh, Samuel, at the, at the house of the, of the priest, Eli. So now you're zooming out in a sense, you're zooming out to really a nation or at least several tribes of, of Israel. It's a collective impact because the, the priest wasn't just about one family, as you, can, as you can understand. He's really helping a whole community of people. And so this is really the religious life of the people of Israel. And immediately in verse 12, after we see in verse 11, we've got Eli, I'm sorry, Samuel is there with Eli. And then in verse 12, your attention is really drawn to these priests and what they're all about. Now, as you're reading that from verse 12 and following, you need to keep this in mind. The priests were people that God had set aside. They were a part of a group of people been set aside to represent the people of God. These were the ones that were operating on behalf of the people, atoning for their sins, offering up thanksgiving, otherwise communicating from the people to God, and of course, vice versa as well, taking messages from God. But, but, but these were people through whom the nation would receive God's blessings, God's forgiveness, and God's hope. That's, that's their purpose. Yet all you see in chapter 2, again, starting in verse 12 and following, is these priests failing the nation from a religious perspective. They are failing to do what they have been put there to do. In verse 12, you, you are introduced to priests. Remember, their job is to intervene, to be, to be mediators between God and man, and they don't even know God. 
In fact, not only do they not know Yahweh, the one true God, they are actually more familiar with the, the pagan religious practices of those people around them. You see that in verses 13 and 14, where the way they're offering these sacrifices don't mirror the Levitical laws. They actually mirror the pagan practices of those around them. God has meticulously laid out exactly how the priests are supposed to offer these sacrifices. You go to Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and he's not just giving general principles. I mean, he is word for word, letter for letter, saying here's what to do. And these men have not even bothered to open the books, to understand what has been written down, what has been passed down from generation to generation. Instead, they're content to look around at the, at the pagan um, uh, god, uh, pagan practices of, for the pagan gods, and to, to mimic those. And, and then if you go to verse 16, as they're offering these offerings, they are actually serving themselves from these offerings. These offerings were such that they were supposed to give a certain portion of it to God and a certain portion of it to the people. There was just some practices that were supposed to be followed there, and they were taking for themselves the best parts stealing from the people they were supposed to be serving, stealing from the God they were supposed to be serving, and they are scheming to take what they want for themselves. And as a result, they are just totally disrespecting God. They are actually in open rebellion against God. Uh, there's a prophecy that comes at the end of chapter 2, and this, this, this prophet is saying uh, about why God has, is going to judge Eli and his household. And he says of these particular uh, priests that they kick at, they, they show their heel, that they're kind of kicking at, disrespecting God, showing him that they're going to do what they want to do, and actually God's bothering them. Uh, this, this is the God that Israel is counting on for, for, for to, to seek God's mercy, to seek his face, to seek his grace on behalf of the nation, yet they're showing that they completely don't care. They are completely have disdain for this one true uh, God, Yahweh God. So these, these priests are ignoring every warning that's coming against them. There's, there's in verse 16, you know, they're, they're trying to take this meat from the people, and there's some people that clearly are kind of pushing back on it, but they, they resist that kind of uh, uh, pressure from them. They just say, no, I'm going to take what I want. Even their own father, Eli, comes and chastises them, and they pay no attention. You go to verse 25, and you can see that. Here's the priest who, if anybody should be warning anyone, it should be the priests warning the people because they should be very well versed in what makes one holy so that he may access and access and approach God. They should be warning the people about here are things you're doing that are not holy, not right. You need to do this differently and change this. Yet they're being warned and they're turning a blind eye to these warnings. And if you go to verses 27 to 34, really the end of the chapter there, you've got this uh, kind of anonymous prophet that comes in, and, and he is sharing with them a judgment, a condemnation that's coming from God himself. Now, now don't get me wrong, everyone is under the rule of God, and nobody is above the law. But isn't it a sad day when the very people that you're looking to, to help you, to guide you, to advise you on how to if I can put it this way, to, to put you in God's good graces. Again, it's a little more complex than that. Ultimately, we understand that it, these sacrifices were pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But, but nonetheless, you're looking to these people to kind of help you, and they are the ones running afoul of God's law. 
it's such a bad situation that that prophet comes in and says, Eli's household, this, this family of priests, and, and these priests would normally operate this way. You, you know, father would be a priest and the sons and then all down the line for, for generations. He's, the, the prophet says in verse 33, this house is dead. It's gone. It's no longer going to be able to serve as a priest. And in fact, the proof that that prophecy was coming about would be the terrible end of Eli's sons. And you see that in verse 34. And that terrible end ultimately does come in, a, in the following chapters. Ultimately, it's, it's, it's one thing for God to intervene on behalf of the little guy. You kind of expect that. You sort of, you see that in Hannah's story to deal with some personal problem, personal issues, that the, the impact of sin on my life or the impact of other people's sin on my life. And, and so that, that's comforting in its way. But it's a completely other thing when the very people who are supposed to point me to God, to intervene on my behalf, they fail me in that regard. And this just underscores again, just like Hannah's story does, it gets at that heart of the story of me, uh, the message of First Samuel. And that message is this. God provides the leaders, both in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, even in our nations, he provides the leaders that we need. And we need to depend on him and his provision, not what we would naturally be looking to. So there, in this case, you've got the natural court. In fact, you go to, back to chapter one, Hannah, Elkanah, that family, who are they going to for their religious practices to, to be thanks, to give thanksgiving to God? Where are they going? They're going to Eli and his family because that's who they would naturally go to. And the story here is, listen, the religious structure is going to fail you. But instead, there is a faithful priest that's promised. If you go to verse 35 in that prophecy, there is offer or promised a faithful priest. Now, I want you to understand this about the faithful priest. I don't have a lot of time to, to explain or uncover all this, but I want to try to summarize it for you in this way. There would be some actual physical people who would come at a later date. In fact, um, there's, a, there's a man named Zadok, a priest named Zadok. He shows up in 1 Kings chapter 2. If you go, I think it's verse 26 through 35. If you go to that little section of 1 Kings chapter 2, you'll see there where uh, this, this, uh, he is put into place as, the, as the, um, the priest by the king at that time. And he's replacing another priest. Now, Zadok is interesting in that he is a priest in the lineage of Eliezer, who is one of Aaron's sons. So there's a specific kind of lineage there that he falls into. And that was God's chosen lineage to be the priest for the people of Israel. He is who is in view, I believe, is who is in view with the prophecy of verse 35, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35. I believe Zadok is the man in view. However, with this man in view, there's actually a couple of layers to the fulfillment here. On the one level, you've actually got someone who is weaving kind of in and out of this passage, who's right here active in this passage, even though he's not very dominant in chapter 2, he's still present in chapter 2, and he is a, a glimmer, if you will, of what that faithful priest is going to be like. It's the man, uh, the, the boy, actually, in the story, Samuel. He's present, and he is working, and he is behind the scenes, and he is offered in stark contrast to the religious system of that day. Remember the priests, they don't even know God. But what is Samuel? He knows and he serves God. You see that in verse 11. 
he, he grows in his knowledge and his respect for the Lord while uh, Hophni and Phinehas, they're over there and they are kind of doing what they want to do, completely disrespecting God. But here's Samuel, verse 21, verse 26. He's growing in his knowledge and respect for the Lord. If you go to chapter three, you're going to see he's actually listening to the Lord and he's working on behalf of God's people. So here we have this image of the faithful priest. Again, it's not the ultimate fulfillment. It's just that precursor, the prefiguring fulfillment of that, that one that would come. And of course, there is the one that would come that would be a direct fulfillment of this, uh, this passage. Zadok, as I mentioned in 1 Kings 2. And, and Samuel's a bit of a reflection of it. But this priest, Zadok, when he comes, he's going to be the one that provides the proper sacrifice. He's going to be the one that follows the law, the Levitical laws of how to, how to make the people holy, to put them in the right, uh, the right relationship with God. Again, going back to Samuel again, he's going to actually save the people. He's not going to serve just his needs. He's going to serve the needs of the people over his own. you got Samuel who in a few chapters, it's going to take a few chapters to get there, but ultimately he's going to be the one who ushers in. Of course, we know it's God orchestrating this, but Samuel is the man who God uses to usher in King David. You've got to understand Israel is surrounded by enemies at this point. They've got enemies embedded next door to them. That's where they've been in Judges, continuously fighting off enemy after enemy. But Samuel is going to be the one who ushers in King David, who puts an end to all that, ultimately defeating the enemies of Israel so that Israel becomes this nation that it's the ultimate nation that it was intended to be. That's what happens there. He saves the people. He serves their needs. But again, even though it's fulfilled, this, this prophecy in verse 35 of a faithful priest is fulfilled in glimmers in Samuel, in actual fact in Zadok, it is fulfilled most fully in an eternal priest that was established by God. Samuel, he serves for a while. You'll read it in the Bible here in a few chapters. He dies because he's a man. Zadok, the man who's in mind here, He's going to serve for a while. He has children who serve. And Hebrews talks about this, where they would serve and year after year, and there would have to be new priests that would replace them. But that was Zadok's family that would serve there. But there would come a time where that would come to an end, and there would become an eternal and everlasting priest who offers that last blood that would ever be needed. And, and, and to, to simply summarize this, you have to go and read the whole book of Hebrews. That's really the point of Hebrews, is to talk about all these sacrifices that are figured in the, in the Old Testament. They are prefigures of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I just want to read you a couple passages out of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 6. It says in chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, Now, of these things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. In verse six, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. The point of that is not only is Jesus a better answer to all of the demands of the law, yes, he is, but he's actually ushering in a whole new era of, of perfection and promise and, and, and just everything that, that you could even imagine, which is why he's called Messiah, the one, the promised one, the anointed one. The point here is that Jesus is that ultimate fulfillment of that better, that most faithful priest. 
And I love it how, it, how, how the writer of Hebrews puts it in chapter 9. I just want to read two verses there, Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. He says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? The point there is, if those those sacrifices of the Old Testament did what they were supposed to do, and I have to believe God's word because God is never going to tell us a lie, that they were actually atonement for God's people, certainly prefiguring that ultimate atonement, looking forward to that, but nonetheless, they were effective as, need, as needed to be at that moment in time. How much more effective for the sins of the entire world was Jesus Christ dying, bleeding on the cross? How much more effective for the sins of mankind? Here's how God takes the religious world and turns it up on its head. And he upends all of that and he provides for us a faithful reason like anything that could ever be found in another This week, in light of uh, the political tent of the week, uh, we have uh, Joe Biden taking over as the 46th president of these United States. I want to tackle a uh, listener-submitted question about politics this week. Uh, I'm going to read it just exactly how it was phrased in my survey. I'd ask for some input on some questions to answer. This was a question that popped up. I found it intriguing, and I just wanted to address it. Here's how it was phrased. It said, do political views determine my Christianity? And of course, you could take that a couple different ways. And if we had that person on to talk with us, and maybe we might do that at some point, because I happen to know who this was, and uh, we might want to do that sometime. But anyway, for, for purposes now, we could talk to that person and go a lot of different ways with this. But I'm just going to address the question essentially just as it was asked. And the way that I'm reading that, do political views determine my Christianity? Does the way that I believe about politics, the, the party that I like, the politicians that I vote for, the issues that I support or I oppose, does that have any bearing on my eternal soul, salvation of my soul? Does how I vote or believe about government make any difference when it comes to my eternal destiny? And I believe that the biblical answer, <clears throat> I want to talk to you about this for just a moment, the biblical answer to this is both yes and no. How's that for wishy-washy? Both yes and no. So let's talk about first yes. How is it yes? Yes, my uh, political views, my political views do determine my Christianity. This weekend, I had the privilege of preaching out of Revelation 22, uh, where Jesus reminds us three times that he's coming again soon. He says, behold, I come quickly. <clears throat> In verses 12 to 15 of chapter 22, Revelation 22, chapter, chapter 22, verses 12 to 15, he emphatically makes the point that there are going to be some who gain heaven and some who will not. What's the difference? Well, he says there it's going to make a difference on who or what they obey. Jesus says that those that see Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which he is, those that, that see him as having a name that is exalted above every name, which he does, those are the people who will, quote, do his commandments. And those people who do his commandments, he says, will have access to the holy eternal city, which we would in shorthand say heaven, but he calls it that, that, that city, the gates of that city. And in that city, they're going to have access to the, 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 that particular fruit that's going to allow them to live forever. It's going to give them eternal life. 
So in summary, Jesus says, there's going to be certain people who do my commandments and they're going to be going to heaven. On the other hand, there are those who will see their own lust, their own desires to be of primary concern. They're going to be desiring altered states of mind. He calls that sorcery. Uh, they're going to be desiring sexual gratification. They're called whoremongers. They're going to be desiring to hurt or harm other people so they can get what they want. There's what those are called murderers. Uh, there are going to be some that desire to deceive other people so they can win. Uh, those are called people who love to lie. And there's going to be people who desire to put really just about anything. You can fill in the blank with about a lot of, a lot of different things. They're going to want to put anything in front of God. And you, he calls that idolatry. Those people who put their own desires, their own lusts above what God has commanded them to do, those people will not be allowed into the city of God and they will not live in heaven forever. The point being, if your political views supersede, or I would even go so far as to say even shape how you view God, you will not go to heaven. Your political views will damn you. And just to up the ante just a little bit, you could even have what one might argue to be the right view of a particular topic. Now, that's a whole deep subject on its own, whether which, which ones are right and all that. We could have that debate anytime you want to, but let's just argue for the sake of argument, you've got the right view. But if you hold to that view in an idolatrous fashion, meaning a fashion or a manner that is not subservient to Jesus Christ as Lord of all and first of all, supreme over all, then your God is your political view, not the Savior who died for your sins. So if that's the case, you're not going to heaven. Jesus told us that in Revelation 22. You're not. You're going to be out without that city, outside of that city, he says. So yeah, your political views do determine your Christianity determining, excuse me, depending on how you approach them, of course, you may not be a follower of Jesus. Jesus explicitly says in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, that to come after him, to follow him, involves denying yourself and putting your rights, your needs, your desires off to the side in favor of absolute obedience to the Lord. And to make that point even sharper, he says that his followers embrace their instruments of execution, their, the cross, their, take up their cross, he says. They will confidently and willingly march behind Jesus to their own death if need be, because they know that following Jesus is more important, even though that may mean they have signed up for suffering. So yes, I believe your political views do indeed determine your Christianity. On the other hand, as I just said, I think the answer is also no. Let me explain how it's no. Um, in Romans, Paul explains the gospel in really some exquisite detail. I would encourage you, if you haven't spent some time just reading and meditating on the thoughts in Romans, please do so. There's, there's an intricate, rich tapestry uh, of our salvation that's described there, and you have some amazing things in your union with Christ. But it's also, at the same time, it's a simple, direct thing. By that I mean, uh, it's not so complicated that you have to have a PhD in order to have salvation. At the end of the day, it's not that. It's what Paul says in Romans 5.1, that we're justified. We're made right with God by having faith in Jesus Christ. We're justified not by what we do. Romans 3.28 says the deeds of the law. We are instead by faith justified. 
And if we have union with Christ, if we're in Christ, Romans 8, 1 says, we're not condemned anymore. And I think the most direct, so simple that, you know, even a small child could understand it. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verses 9, and then in 13, he says essentially that if we call on the name of the Lord, so with faith in our hearts and the truth of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross on our lips, we will be saved. Nowhere in the scripture is there any salvation associated with a particular set of political beliefs, with capitalism, socialism, um, uh, any kind of Republican, uh, Democrat uh, party platforms, none of those things. None of those things are associated with salvation. Belief in Christ and his finished work on the cross, absolutely. But political parties, cults of personality, no, absolutely not. In fact, the Corinthian church was chastised for following after different personalities. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starts about verse 10, I think goes to about verse 17. To be fair, that was a discussion a little more about church politics, a little more about um, different, uh, different personalities within the church than it was about the politics of Rome. But I think the comparison can hold up in that, in that discussion. The point was there's no place for politics, or, you know, following different political parties as a, as, a, as a litmus test, if you will, of your salvation. Uh, to say it another way, or maybe even more bluntly, nobody's going to heaven because your voter registration card is stamped with a D or an R any more than getting B for Baptist tattooed on your chest is going to get you into that holy city. Uh, further, we are called to larger scriptural principles, Christ-like principles, things like love, submission to authority. Even though we are called to these things, there's also a lot of leeway, a lot of uh, Christian liberty, to use that phrase, in the practical political perspectives that each of us hold. I actually have a whole sermon on this topic. Uh, I title it, How Christians Should Vote. And I would, I'll link to it in the show notes in case you have interest in listening. But you can also get kind of the gist of that by going and reading and studying on your own. Romans chapter 12, 13, and 14. That's essentially the text that I use for that, for that sermon. So go, go study that on, on your own. But I think the, the, the upshot of it is that first and foremost, we need to be good followers of Christ. Be good Christians primarily. That means we need to love people. We need to love Christians, especially Christians. But no matter what people's political persuasion is, I mean, we are to be marked by love for one another. That's what Jesus said. That's how they're going to know that we're followers of Jesus. And then once you've taken care of that, you focused on that. If you've got time, you've got energy left, go ahead, take a position on immigration. Go ahead and take a position on taxes. Go ahead and take a position on foreign policy. But do so in a way that you know with good faith, good conscience, that it's going to be pleasing to the Lord. Because you're ultimately God's servant before you're anything else in this world. And you want to make sure you're pleasing to the Master. So you're going to take any position. I don't think there's anything in Scripture that says you can't take a position on these things. But whatever that position is, you're going to take it in a way that pleases God. Thank you so much for joining me this week on Seeking Christ in the Scriptures. I hope you'll follow us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, you can also watch the show on YouTube or Facebook just by searching out Seeking Christ in the Scriptures on those platforms, and you'll land on our page there, and you can watch those videos. If you found the show helpful and interesting in any way whatsoever, would you mind sharing it with somebody? 
um, maybe liking a post that you see or just uh, uh, retweeting any of those things, any of those kinds of uh, social media uh, outreach, that would be awesome. Or maybe you're inclined to, to rate us on Apple Podcasts. All those things can go a long way in helping us get the word out about the show. But I really would appreciate if you would help us in that way. I hope you have a great week. Tune in next week and every week for a new episode of Seeking Christ in the Scriptures.